Today we're going to be talking about three main points, even though I wrote four bullets. Anger is the foothold for communism and radical political ideology. Philosophy is essential to sound theology and politics. We could be beta. Find out more today on the Solomon's Corner Book Club. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. We're going to just dive right into it, but first, don't forget to sign up for the Solomon's Corner Book Club newsletter. Go to solomonscorner.com forward slash book club. Once again, that's solomonscorner.com forward slash book club and click on the button that says subscribe with a little email icon or whatever. We're not super high tech here, folks, so, you know, figure it out. Anyway, today we're talking about chapter five. Beta, the disappointed lover, which every time I hear this, I think about Ben Shapiro's Beto. <laughs> and I just started thinking about it when I sat down to record this podcast. So if I start to go into Beto, the disappointed lover from Auschwitz, like it's, it's just me having some Freudian slips. Today, though, we have a very complicated character. The question that you ask when you read the first chapter is, why is Beta... A disappointed lover. I almost did it again. I almost said Beto. Why is Beto a disappointed lover, brah? <laughs> Elect me and let me take your guns. Which is ironic because Beto is also kind of communist. And we're talking about Beta, the communist. So if you're just joining us, we're reading The Captive Mind by Szeszwath Miłosz. And he is a Polish survivor of communism and Nazism. And the book we are reading is The Captive Mind. It's a fascinating read because Poland found themselves smashed between two of the most dangerous political ideologies man has ever created. And he is going to go into the spiritual impact that this had on the citizens as they tried to decide how they were going to adapt to these two totalitarian systems. So Beta, and if you haven't figured out yet in this book that... Miwosh is trying to hide the identity of his friends, even the ones that he doesn't really like that much. And as we find, there is only one term appropriate for beta. And, uh, you know, that's it. Well, I guess my wife just made me realize there could be multiple terms for beta. You want me to just say it? Yeah. Beta is a d***. Anyway, the the beta here is a friend of Miłosz who, who finds himself as a talented young writer, but he ends up in Auschwitz. And the question, kind of returning back to this, is why is, is Beto, <laughs> Beta a disappointed lover? And the reason why is because, like many young political writers at the time, he is in love with the ideal, meaning this this perfect unity and harmony, and his whole world gets shattered by the Nazism and his time in Auschwitz. And what you'll find is that most of the time, well, what you'll find in reading Beta is that he is a evil survivor of Auschwitz. Most of the time when you read about survivors out of Auschwitz or communism, we often find these saint-like people 
who have been humbled by their suffering. They're more virtuous than we believe we deserve. And we really put them on a pedestal and give them awards. But Beta, he became more evil in Auschwitz. And so when we talk about what made him this way, it was because he had this obsession with the ideal. And what we mean by that, again, is this idea of the perfect or the, the, the pure. And he thought that life could be organized in such a way that, that eventually things would, would, would become perfect. And so he says here uh, that about his time in Auschwitz that he begins to reject this idea of philosophy and the ideal. He starts to, to really just hate it because he's been in Auschwitz now and, and he, is, he is contemplating what should be the object of his devotion. And it says here, At the root of his hatred, that's Beto, was the same reaction that Sartre called La Nausier, namely, discussed with man as a physiological being determined by the laws of nature and society and subject to the destructive effects of time. Man should somehow break these shackles and rise even if he had to hoist himself up by his own bootstraps. Had Beta been French, perhaps he might have become an existentialist. Probably, though that would not have satisfied him. He smiled contemptuously at mental speculation, for he remembered seeing philosophers fighting over garbage in the camp. Human thought had no significance. Subterfuges and self-deceptions were easier to decipher. All that really counted was the movement of matter. He absorbed dialectical materialism as a sponge soaks up water. Its materialistic side appeased his hunger for brutal truth. Its dialectical side permitted a sudden leap above the human species to a vision of humanity as the material of history. And so he exchanges the ideal, this immaterial form, generally speaking, is this, you know, what's the perfect man, this kind of immaterial concept. And he says, no, I'm going to exchange it for matter because his time in Auschwitz makes him just hate everything. And he's called a nihilist by Miłosz. And so as you're reading it, you tend to actually think about, you know, the old Star Wars movies, like the first three. That's what I thought of. My wife's going to kill me right now. I can tell because she's like, where are you going with this? Don't ruin it. Don't ruin it. But <laughs> as I was reflecting on this chapter, I actually wrote out a, uh, no, you were supposed to be the chosen one, which is what Obi-Wan yells at Darth Vader because he ends up giving in to the dark side in the first trilogy of prequels. And it's kind of a gaffe uh, in the movies, but you kind of get that sense with Beta here because as we see in this section, he says, uh, Miwosh says this on page 126, the communists proclaimed that Beta's work resembled depraved or American literature, that it was pessimistic and that it lacked the element of conscious struggle, i.e. struggle in the name of communism. But these criticisms were uttered in a persuasive tone. And what they mean by that is that they were kind of like, hey, let us coach you, we can help you you know, become a better communist. They weren't like coming at him like, you know, in the jugular saying, you know, struggle session now. They were gentle in their uh, persuasion. Beta was young and needed educating, yet he had in him the makings of a real communist writer. Observing him carefully, the party, that's the communists, discovered in him a rare 
and precious treasure. True hatred. Beta was receptive. The more he read of the Leninist-Stalinist theory, the more he convinced himself that this was exactly what he was looking for. His hatred was like a torrential river, uselessly rushing ahead. What could be simpler than to set it to turning the party's gristmills? What a relief. Useful hatred. Hatred put to the service of society. And so, what we find here is that political philosophy and radical ideologies, whether that be fascism or communism, which America is flirting with both right now, if, if you look at what they capitalize on, they capitalize on the anger that necessarily will come from life. There will be nothing good. Your life will not be perfect. And this is what the communists and the fascists capitalize on, which is why it's so important for, in order for a society to thrive, that it have religious guardrails in place in order to ensure that hatred never becomes true hatred, meaning something that drives you to a political radicalness that ultimately makes you less human and more animalistic, or what we would call barbaric. And so we have this assumption in society that the more technologically advanced we are, the more ethical and the more human we are. But what we don't realize is that what makes us human is our capacity to recognize the value of an individual against the collective. That our ability to recognize that human beings do have a certain way that they're supposed to be uh, behave and actually live, and that these guardrails do prevent barbarism. And so this is why when oftentimes monotheistic religions come in, they end up shutting down a lot of the barbaric practices. In fact, I was listening to a Catholic thinker discuss how missionaries would go into these barbaric regions or polytheistic regions where they had many idols and many gods, and that they were expected to, before they became saved or after they became saved, part of the process was that they were going to have to destroy their idols. They were going to have to give up their barbaric practices like cannibalism or eating weird animals or just doing weird stuff. The point is, is that when we don't have Christian guardrails in place, when we don't actually have the theistic goals that you're supposed to have as an individual, that you're supposed to aim at regardless of the time that you're in, the society necessarily devolves into a barbaric political system. And that's what communism is, and that's what fascism is. And they're really as far as intensity goes, they are just horrible in the way that they treat human beings. And we'll read a little bit about that. So the point here is that anger is what they try to capitalize on. And it's important for Christians, especially in America, because that is the majority denomination, to ensure that hatred on the left, so if you're more on the left and you're a Christian, you need to ensure that hatred does not become the motivator for your political ideologies. And on the right, you have to do the same thing because both sides right now are flirting with a kind of fascism or communism that could be very dangerous depending on who takes the power. I think the left currently is the one that's more dangerous, but the right has seeds 
of dangerous ideas around loyalty to a, a, a individual rather than to ideas. This is, this is very dangerous stuff that we're living in right now. The second point that we want to get into, though, is that philosophy is essential to living your life. You are a rational being. And what communism does, especially, is it comes in, or fascism, it comes in and it tries to give you the philosophy of your life. And if you don't follow that philosophy, you're dead. The church, traditionally, has had philosophy as part of its theological training. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that in the wake of the church becoming more anti-intellectual in America and ejecting any use of philosophy, that the politics have come in and tried to fill the gap. In order for us to fight back in our current kind of giant versus giant, us being the fly in the middle kind of situation, the church is going to have to regain its understanding of philosophy. It's going to have to understand that it is an essential part just like a wife is an essential part of a marriage, so philosophy is an essential part of whatever your theological tradition actually is. There is no such thing as biblical theology. Biblical theology is just another form of systematic theology, and it is completely and totally dependent on philosophical assumptions that you make, like words can be understood, that they correspond to reality, that they actually have meaning, and that they only give you a little bit of the picture from the text, and so you're going to have to extrapolate out with some sort of tool. That tool is going to be philosophical in nature. So when God says, let us make man in our image, the Bible never defines what a man is. And if you look at our current debate around gender, that's exactly the question that you get asked as a Christian on a regular basis. Well, who are you to say that this is what a man is? There's no Bible verse that says I can't be a man inside of a woman's body, etc., etc., etc. So, as we move forward through this, if the church doesn't actually decide to take up its philosophical cross, so to speak, we are going to find more and more people turning towards anger. And in order for us to deal with the problem of evil that communism tries to capitalize on, meaning that you live in a fallen world and that there are injustices and that you are rightly frustrated with those injustices. But Christianity says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Shut down injustices. Do not be somebody who's easily angered. Those are the kinds of things that Christianity tells you to do. But you have to have a philosophy that then motivates you to act in a certain way and that can adapt when you make a mistake in how you live it out and when you make a success in how you live it out. Communism just wants to eliminate that whole package, and it wants to come in and tell you, you're nothing but a political animal. You're not a human being even. You're just a political animal, and we need you to sit, and we need you to speak when we tell you to speak, and we need you to bite when we tell you to bite. You're nothing more than that. Christianity says you are a unique individual that God made that has a specific purpose in the time that you're in, but beware because your enemy, the devil, prowls around looking for somebody to devour. Until we get to heaven, that's just the way life is going to be. And if we don't understand that, then we too might end up like Beta. So what happens to Beta? And Before you decide to immediately judge Beta as somebody who is horrible, um, and let me read a quote real quick to kind of show you how easy it is to judge him as horrible. 
Miwosh says this on page 115. Immediately after Beta's release, he settled in Munich. It was there in 1946 that the book, We Were in Auschwitz, written by him and two of his fellow prisoners, appeared. It was dedicated to the American 7th Army, which brought us liberation from Dachau-Alak concentration camp. On his return to Poland, Beta published his volume of short stories. I have read many books about concentration camps, but not one of them is as terrifying as his stories because he never moralizes, he relates. A special social hierarchy comes into being in a concentration universe. At the top stand the camp authorities. After them come prisoners, trusted by the administration. Next come the prisoners clever enough to find means of getting sufficient food to keep up their strength. At the bottom stand the weak and clumsy, who daily tumble lower as their undernourished organisms fail to bear up under the work. In the end, they die, either in the gas chamber or from an injection of fennel. Obviously, his hierarchy does not include the masses of people killed immediately upon their arrival, i.e. the Jews, except for those who were single and especially fit for work. In these stories, Beta clearly defines his social position. He belonged to the caste of clever and healthy prisoners, and he brags, emphasis by Miwosh, about his cunning and agility. Life in a concentration camp requires constant alertness. Every moment can decide one's life or death. In order to react appropriately at all times, one must know where danger lies and how to escape it. Sometimes by blind obedience, sometimes by calculated negligence, sometimes by blackmail or bribery. One of his stories consists of an account of a series of dangers he dodges in the course of a single day. So this is a family-friendly warning. So what I mean by that is what I'm about to read you is not family-friendly. So if you have any children in the room, I recommend you pause now and move them out because this is some dark, dark, evil stuff. I'm going to read you two stories out of Beta's experience in Auschwitz. One is going to be about a, a mother and a child. The other one is going to be about how Beta treated a Jewish man before he died. Before I read that, know this. Beta is proud, says Miwosh, to succeed when others, less clever, perish. Let me read that again. Beta is proud to succeed when others, less clever, perish. So keep that in mind as we read these excerpts from Miwosh, uh, from Beta's account in We Were in Auschwitz. Beta writes, They keep moving to avoid a beating. They eat grass and slimy mud so they won't feel hungry. They walk dejectedly, still living corpses. This is what Beta says of his fellow inmates. But of himself, Beta writes, It's good to work after one has eaten a breakfast of a rasher of bacon with bread and garlic and washed it down with a can of condensed milk. Miwosh continues, A detail concerning Beta's clothes. All about him are half-naked wretches. Beta says, I go into the shade and place my jacket under me so that I won't soil my silk shirt and settle down comfortably to sleep. Each of us rests however he can afford to. Miwosh continues, And here is a scene of class contrast. Becker, another prisoner, is to be burned in the crematorium because he is too weak to be useful. 
Here's a long quote from Beta about, about, I believe it's Beaker. At that moment, a huge gray skull emerged out of the depths over the edge of the wooden bunk and embarrassed, blinking eyes peered at us. Then Beaker's face appeared, crumpled and more aged than ever. Teddy, I have something to ask you. Talk, I said. Beta is um, the I in this sentence. Talk, I said, leaning down to him. Teddy, I'm going to the chimney. I leaned down a little more and looked into his eyes at close range. They were calm and empty. Teddy, I've been hungry for so long. Give me something to eat for this last evening. Kozik slapped me on the knee. Do you know this Jew? It's Beaker, I answered softly. You, Jew, get up there on the bunk and stuff yourself. When you're full, you can take the rest with you to the chimney. Go on. I don't sleep there, so you can take along your lice. Teddy, he took me by the arm. Come, in the barrack, I have got a wonderful apple pie straight from my mother. Miwosh says this about Beta. In the abundant literature of atrocity of the 20th century, one rarely finds an account written from the point of view of an accessory to the crime. Authors are usually ashamed of this role, but collaboration is an empty word as applied to a concentration camp. The machine is impersonal. Responsibility shifts from those who carry out orders to those higher, always higher. Beta's stories about the transport, should I believe, be included in all anthologies of literature dealing with the lot of man in totalitarian society if ever such anthologies are compiled. Before we go on, what you need to understand why Miwosh is saying this, because some of us might say, why would you want to support somebody like this? Why would you want him even included amongst the other survivors? Because one of the themes in Miwosh's writing is that the West has a very, very superficial understanding of human nature. They don't realize the potential evil that it has within it. And they walk around judging oftentimes the individuals who did horrible, horrible stuff out of desperation, out of survival. Beta is not a Christian in this situation, and so he falls on to nihilism, and, and Miwosh makes that judgment. That's not me. That's it's Miwosh's interpretation of the fact that he, not being a Christian, has nothing to hang on to and just basically gets sucked into this horrible, evil ideology that eventually, spoiler alert, kills him through suicide. And in all of this, this is just the Nazi situation that happens to Beta. So this is Beta being captured by the Nazis during World War II, and he ends up surviving this whole thing. Not because of providence or anything like that, but because he is a evil, evil prisoner who takes advantage of his fellow prisoners. And so now what Miwosh is going to do is he's going to show you a very, very difficult scene of a Jewish mother trying to avoid being uh, caught up. I'm, I'm going to read it in its entirety. It is graphic. So brace yourself. Beta writes, Here comes a woman walking briskly, hurrying almost imperceptibly yet feverishly. A small child with the plump, rosy face of a cherub runs after her, fails to catch up, stretches out its hands, crying, Mama, Mama. Woman, take this child in your arms. 
Sir, it isn't my child, it isn't mine. The woman shouts hysterically and runs away, covering her face with her hands. She wants to hide. She wants to reach those who won't leave in a truck, who will leave on foot, who will live. She is young, healthy, pretty. She wants to live. But the child runs after her, pleading at the top of its voice, Mama, Mama, don't run away. It's not mine, not mine, not... Until Andrej, the sailor from Sevstopol, overtook her. His eyes were troubled by vodka and the heat. He reached her, knocked her off her feet with a single powerful blow. As she fell, caught her by the hair, and dragged her up again. His face was distorted with fury. Why, you lousy f***ing bitch. You'd run away from your own child. I'll show you, you wh-. He grabbed her in the middle, one paw throttling her throat, which wanted to shout, and flung her into the truck like a heavy sack of grain. Here, take this with you, you and he threw her child at her feet. That's how one should punish unnatural mothers, said an SS man standing near the van. A pair of people fall to the ground entangled in a desperate embrace. He digs his fingers into her flesh convulsively, tears at her clothes with his teeth. She screams hysterically, curses, blasphemes until, stifled by a boot, she chokes and falls silent. They split them apart like a tree and herd them into the car like animals. Others are carrying a young girl with a missing leg. They hold her by her arms and by her one remaining leg. Tears are streaking down her face as she whispers sadly, Please, please, it hurts, it hurts. They heave her into a truck among the corpses. She will be burned alive together with them. Now, forgive me for bringing you through this, but it's important for you to understand, especially as an American or a Westerner, if you're international, about what these people were going through and what happens to the human spirit when they go through these things. It might be easy for us to sit here and say, I would never do this. I would never, I would never abandon my child. But what Miwosh is trying to get you to understand is that you don't know what you would do until you're there. And so, if you've listened to anything by Jordan Peterson, for example, where he talks about PTSD oftentimes being uh, the results of individuals not being understanding of themselves and the evil that they're capable of. That's not just evil in terms of having to kill somebody because you're a soldier on the battlefield and you're just following orders, or you're a soldier trying to, you know, uh, stop some evil group, and so you're you're having to fight evil with evil. In this context, we find that you might just break down and become a coward, so much so that you forsake your own nature as a mother. Instead of caring for your child, you abandon it, because fear ultimately wins over. So, if you're like me, as you're reading along, you wanted to say to your friends in the book club, man, Beta is a real jerk. But Miwosh predicts that that's what you're going to want to do, and he writes this. Beta is a nihilist in his stories, but by that I do not mean that he is amoral, meaning without any ethics or anything like that. On the contrary, his nihilism, uh, just nihilism is a belief that everything is meaningless. On the contrary, Beta's nihilism results from an ethical passion, from disappointed love of the world and of humanity. He wants to go the limit in describing what he saw. 
He wants to depict with complete accuracy a world in which there is no longer any place for indignation. The human species is naked in his stories, stripped of those tendencies toward good which last only so long as the habit of civilization lasts. But the habit of civilization is fragile. A sudden change in circumstances and humanity reverts to its primeval savagery. How deluded are those respectable citizens who, striding along the streets of English or American cities, consider themselves men of virtue and goodness. Of course it is easy to condemn a woman who would abandon her child in order to save her own life. This is a monstrous act. Yet a woman who, while reading on her comfortable sofa, judges her unfortunate sister, should pause to consider whether fear would not be stronger than love within her if she too were faced with horror. Perhaps it would, perhaps not. Who can foretell? But the concentration universe also contained many human beings who spurred themselves to the noblest acts, who died to protect others. None of them figure in Beta's stories. His attention is fixed not on man. Man is simply an animal that wants to live, but on concentration society. So what we find here is that we should not be too quick to judge our Polish brothers and sisters, our German brothers and sisters, or our Russian brothers and sisters, or our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, or our American brothers and sisters. We do not know what kind of evil we might be capable of under such pressures. So, in closing, we have to ask a question. Well, what do you do in these situations? Beta and his life are two mirrors one of our current selves and one of our potential self. We have to ask ourselves, who are we? Are we cunning survivalists who see fellow neighbors as our own competition in a sick game of survivor? Are we a mother, young and beautiful, who abandons her screaming child? Who are we? Man needs a city and a practice. Communism provides these things, but so also Christianity. This we must recognize, that we are rational animals. And by rational, I mean spiritual. We must serve the kingdom of God. We must worship the Son of Man, and doing so in a way that separates us from the world and unites us to Christ. Maybe then, maybe, if we do that now, maybe we won't abandon our children. Maybe we will not be Alpha, the first friend, or Beta, but instead will be disciples. May God grant us strength, courage, faith, hope, and love. Keep thinking.